You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Stephen Kistler, Research Fellow in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, March 12th. Hello, Dr. Kistler. Are you all set? Yes, I'm here. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. Thank sure. you very much. Um, I've already gone through my introduction. Everybody knows who you are uh, and how to do all this stuff. So I think we can just jump right into the questions. Uh, first question. Hi, Dr. Kisler. Thank you for making time for us today. Um, I'm going to ask you about the variants in spring break. So last year nationally, we saw a rise in coronavirus cases following spring break. Now it's almost upon us again. So talk to me about what we saw last year and what we could expect to see this year, considering now vaccines and variants are also in the mix. Yeah, so anytime we see a surge in travel, we often see a surge in cases that follows. Um, and I think that that's in large part um, just because you're interacting with many people who you wouldn't normally otherwise um, on the way um, and potentially at your destination as well. Um, so I think that we can expect that uh, traveling for spring break might make uh, make for it a little bit it might make it a little bit more difficult to uh, manage cases in the immediately coming weeks. Um, as you mentioned, uh, we have the spread of the variants, um, in particular the B117 variant, uh, which was first detected in the UK, um, has been spreading quite a bit and is making up uh, a large proportion of cases in a couple of states, um, including Florida and California. Um, and so I think that's something we're going to have to be paying very close attention to, um, that that variant uh, is more infectious. Um, and so I think that that requires us to take um, elevated precautions, uh, really making sure that our masks are fitting tightly, um, making sure that we're trying to be a little bit more vigilant about distancing uh, to reduce the spread. But as you said, vaccination rates are coming up as well, and it seems like the vaccines are effective, especially against uh, severe disease, um, severe illness and death, um, which is a really good sign. So uh, we're sort of in this place where we're, uh, on the one hand, we could see an increased amount of spread, but with the increase in vaccination, that will help sort of keep things at bay a little bit. I'm afraid that we may still see a bump in cases um, after after the spring break holiday. Um, I think that we haven't quite reached enough vaccination to avoid that, um, especially given the variants. But uh, but I am also hopeful that with increasing rates of vaccination, that that bump won't be too large. Thank you. And I'm in Florida, which is not only a spring break destination, but also considered one of those open states when it comes to our COVID policies. So do you have any recommendations or projections for Florida communities, hospitals, or individuals as spring break approaches? Yeah, so um, it's, uh, it's always dangerous to make projections because there's uh, so much uh, that goes into what actually leads to outbreaks in particular places at particular times. But that said, um, right, with, with Florida being a destination with many businesses being open at the moment, um, I think that there is uh, what we would call an increased level of, of susceptibility in the population towards, uh, towards rising cases. So um, I think you know, the, the most important thing for Florida residents to bear in mind is that there will be an influx of people from other states. Um, and uh, the, the bottom line, though, is, is the same as it's always been, that masking and distancing work, um, that when your name comes up to get the vaccine, get it when you're able to. Um, and, 
yeah, I think that we're we're in a uh, an important time in terms of COVID control right now with with the spread of the variants. It it, it could it could begin to go either way. Um, so in terms of business owners, in terms of uh, policymakers, I think that we need to be vigilant in terms of rising cases and be ready to pivot to reverse course if cases do start to rise again to maintain control. We, we, we don't want to give up all the, all the gains that we've made so far in terms of reducing COVID cases. Um, but at the moment, the main thing to do is to just um, keep the same precautions in place and just recognize that uh, with the increase in vaccinations, we have more work to do, but, um, but there's hope in the not too distant future. Thank you very much. Thanks. Next question. Next question. Hi. Um. Thanks. Thanks so much. I was going to just sort of follow up. If I'm just kind of curious, um, how you're viewing B117 right now. Um. Is it still? I mean, like, I know it's sort of still building up. You know, whatever it is, doubling every, roughly every whatever it is, two weeks. And I know it depends. And there's geographic variability as well, but. It's so far, at least, it doesn't seem to have led to any, at least, like, even localized increases. And is that just, like, a matter of time or, like, between natural infections and vaccines and maybe, like, a seasonal boost? Like, we're just staying ahead of it for now? Like, I, can you just like, sort of walk me through your thinking on where things stand with, with B117 in particular? Yeah, well, you've, you've largely named it all. So um, the, with B117, uh, we are... Uh, as, as far as we can tell from a lot of the genomic surveillance of the pathogen that we've been doing, we're, um, we're at least a few weeks behind uh, the epidemics of B117 that have been spreading, for example, in many countries in Europe. So, um, so part of it is just that we haven't quite seen B117 take hold enough to really begin uh, bringing cases up in, in, in most places by and large. Um, we really started to see uh, noticeable increases in overall COVID cases once B117 started making up over half, you know, up to two thirds of the of the total number of cases. And while that's true in some areas, it's definitely not true in a widespread um, fashion. So, so part of it is I think that we just haven't quite seen what it can do yet. Um, but we are helped a lot by, uh, of course, the increase in vaccination rates. Um, uh, so I think that that's really helping to keep B117 at bay. Um, as well as the uh, changing seasonal effects. So uh, I think one of the, the worst things about the when B117 emerged um, and uh, caused major outbreaks in the UK was that that coincided with the holidays, with the winter time when coronavirus transmission really peaks. Um, whereas we're seeing uh, widespread transmission of B117 during a time when the transmission of coronavirus is expected to go down. So we're in this sort of strange position where there are all of these different forces um, sort of pushing the COVID pandemic in, in different directions. And um, it's still not totally clear which of those will win out in either the short term or the medium term. Um, but I think that the, the fact that we have those counterbalancing forces, whereas in other countries, they were all sort of helping the B117 to spread is part of what's uh, in our favor and what has been preventing us from seeing major surges of B117 so far. Do you think like, and again, you know, obviously, like you were just saying, there's a lot of factors at work here, but like, do you think B117 could be partly responsible for um, the slowing of the decreases in the US? Yeah, I, I do. I think that, you know, as, as you said, the, the cases in the US decreased um, really quite quickly, um, especially over February, beginning of February. Um, and so I think what we may be seeing is um, essentially, uh, 
the the tide of the pandemic coming down, but sort of reaching this level where B117 is beginning to circulate. And I think I do think that that can be partly responsible for the slowdown. Great. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Next question. Hi, thank you for taking our questions. Um, I'm curious what you think about uh, the president's uh, announcement of May 1st, where all uh, eligible adults could start making appointments. Um, I know there's going to be more vaccine supply, but are, are there any concerns that there will be too many people fighting for vaccine appointments at that point or that there'll be some equity issues? Uh, I'm curious what you think of that policy decision. Yeah, so first and foremost, I think that uh, making vaccines as widely accessible as we can, given the supply, is a very good thing. Um, up until this point, of course, we haven't had enough vaccine supply to allow everyone to get the vaccine immediately. Um, and so it's made a lot of sense to prioritize people for vaccination who are at increased risk of severe disease, um, which is generally included to the elderly populations. Um, but of course, I think that uh, accessibility certainly does not imply equity. Um, and I think that there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that in addition to making the vaccines accessible to um, American adults on May 1st, uh, we still have a long way to go to make sure that they're distributed to the communities who need them most. Um, we know for certain, I mean, the, the consistent story over the course of this entire pandemic um, is that um, people of color, um, communities of essential workers have been uh, at increased risk of infection and increased risk of severe illness and death. Um, and now, you know, those, those disparities didn't come from nowhere. Um, and those disparities continue to exist and will probably continue to make those same communities have difficulty accessing the vaccines. For example, you take the case of essential workers, um, which is a really a wide net of, of, of individuals. Um, but you can imagine that if vaccine clinics have restricted hours, um, or if Childcare isn't made available so that people can go and get their vaccines. It's going to be much harder for those populations um, who really need the vaccine uh, to get it. So um, I was encouraged um, by the president's speech the other evening that uh, that it seems like these things are on their mind, that there's a lot of emphasis on distribution of the vaccines, um, not just making them available at mass vaccination sites, but really trying to go into communities that need them most. Um, but this is something we're thinking a lot about right now um, because there's a real danger uh, towards persisting, uh, allowing some of the inequities to persist um, if we just declare success by making the vaccine widely available. I think there's a lot more work to be done um, to make sure that uh, the communities who need them most get them. Um, and I think that's, that's really our next major, major challenge. So um, a couple of follow-ups. I'm wondering about you know, there's a few states, uh, Maine, uh, Connecticut, I think maybe Nebraska that have gone entirely age-based. So will those states be uh, more well-positioned for the, the May 1st transition to, you know, opening the barn doors for everybody? Or um, the fact that, you know, there hasn't been, we haven't done, you know, the more complicated, if you have two qualifying health conditions, you know, those kinds of things, it, it might be worse for equity. I, I realize that's a broad question. I hope you can, <laughs> right. I hope you understood it. <laughs> yeah, so there, there are a couple of things to um, to bear in mind in terms of the, the, the intersection between age and comorbidities and equity and uh, sort of how, how this rollout is working. Um, so you know, one thing that some people have pointed out is that uh, by, by going strictly by age, um, simply because of differences in, in life expectancy between different demographic groups. Um, you may 
disproportionately disproportionately vaccinate um, white individuals. Um, and so that can sort of lead to some inequities in terms of the total vaccine uptake by um, by demographic groups. Um, but that, you know, there's there are all sorts of the, the thing that makes this so complex is the intersectionality of all of these different factors. Um, you know, a person is, of course, has all of these different attributes and um, and so and age factors into it, comorbidity factors into it, occupation factors into it, um, race and ethnicity factor into it, um, to the extent that those reflect uh, underlying disparities in access to care and these kinds of things. Um, and so I think that uh, I, I can't necessarily say which states uh, would be in a better position to address issues of equity, uh, of vaccine equity, given what they've done so far. Um, I could see an argument being made either way. Um, I think the most important thing is just that we bear them in mind going forward um, and, and recognize that just making the vaccine available uh, won't be enough to address these issues properly. Uh, if, if I have time for just one last question, the um, what about just simply the 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 logistics of of doing this, uh, opening the doors wide for for everybody on May first? I know there'll be more supply, and, and obviously they're doing more, you know, with uh, you know uh, bringing federal resources to bear. But it, 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 is this? Do you think this will go smoothly or do you think this is going to be a logistical problem? So um, I am I am cautiously hopeful. Um, you know, we uh, we've had a couple of months to uh, to think about how this distribution needs to happen. And this is also not the first time that we've done mass distribution of a vaccine. Um, just back in 2009, we had an influenza pandemic and um, we had to distribute that vaccine uh, quickly to large proportions of the population as well. So, so we have some experience doing this. Now, um, uh, will it go totally smoothly? Uh, no, certainly not. Um, I think that there will be uh, lots of factors that um, will lead to frustration and difficulty in, uh, and, and potentially delays in accessing the vaccines. Um, but I, I am also hopeful. That, um, I know that there have been a lot of really, really talented people working on this um, on, on every level um, to make sure that the logistics are as smooth as they can be given the immensity of this operation. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, I, while I can't guarantee that it will go perfectly smoothly, um, I, I am hopeful because this is, this is not the first time that we've done something like this and I'm, and I'm confident that, um, that we'll be able to meet the challenge uh, as it arises. Thank you. Thanks. Next question. Hi, thanks for taking questions. So my question is, where would you say we are now regarding evidence on whether you could get COVID from a variant even after vaccination? So we're still learning a lot. Um, I would say that it, uh, it depends quite a bit on the variant as well. Um, there are a couple of different variants that are spreading currently. Um, some of which seem to have enhanced transmissibility where they spread more easily, but they don't necessarily um, get around your immune response. Whereas other variants um, do in fact have mutations that allow the virus to at least partially evade the immune response that you've built up either from natural infection uh, or from the vaccine. So I think that reinfections are, are absolutely possible both after natural infection and after the vaccine. Um, and uh, the particular variants that, uh, that partially escape our immune response 
um, are more likely to do that. Uh, it's, it seems like it's possible to get reinfected with um, even a non-variant type of COVID after na a natural infection. Um, we haven't seen that as much with vaccines, I believe, but uh, certainly the variants can cause reinfections after the vaccine. But I think that that's still, you know, it, I, I really want to emphasize that that uh, that getting the vaccine is still incredibly important because reinfection does not necessarily mean that you're at the same risk of severe outcomes from COVID. Um, getting the vaccine and getting infected with the variant uh, will reduce your chances of ending up in the hospital or dying, um, and will probably reduce your chances of spreading to others. Although we're still learning about that as well. Um, so the vaccines, you know, despite the fact that they're uh, efficacy declines a little bit when they're faced with some of these variants, um, their effectiveness against uh, severe disease and mortality is still immensely high. Um, and so uh, they're still important tools. Great, thanks, no follow-ups. Thanks. It looks like um, that was our last question. Um, we can wait a moment, see if anybody else has anything that comes to mind. Otherwise, uh Oh. Hi, sorry, so I have a quick one. Um, sure. uh, thanks for doing this. So um, obviously, you know, a few weeks ago, we were looking at a picture where cases were falling in the US and were also falling pretty much everywhere. I mean, Europe cases were falling as well, um, Latin America. They're still falling, to, uh, you know, in the United States, but that trend has reversed uh, elsewhere. Europe is starting to see climbing cases. I guess I, I wonder, whether we should take a warning from that is that something that that um, uh, you know could happen here? And also, you know, is it just a case that we're in different stages of the battle of vaccination against infection? I'm, I'm yeah, so curious what what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, as I mentioned before, I, the way that I see our um, relationship with COVID and, and particularly the spread of the variants is that we're sort of lagged a couple of weeks behind many of the countries in Europe that are starting to see rises in cases right now. Um, and so I think that we should take that as a very serious warning that that um, can and, and very well might happen here as well. Um, that said, we're we're vaccinating people at a, at a pretty high rate. Um, and, uh, and by being delayed, we have the benefit of um, some of the seasonal factors working in our benefit as well. So, uh, so clearly it's possible for these variants to cause surges in COVID um, during a time of year when you might not expect it to as much. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I think that we should take it as a very clear warning. Um, I do think that there's a decent possibility that that could happen here, but, uh, but again, not a guarantee. Great, thank you. Thanks. Did you have another question? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, since this was going quickly, I'll just ask one more quick question as long as everybody's okay with that. Um, just switching gears a little bit, I, I'm wondering uh, what you're thinking about um, uh, schools reopening to more in-person learning. Um, there's uh, a lot of uh, um, discussion about the US CDC guidelines and that uh, maybe they should be switched to um, de-emphasize the three foot, six foot rules. Um, and, um, you know, Massachusetts is, uh, and other states I think are requiring, uh, you know, full-time in-person learning. There's uh, some uh, movement towards that in Maine, or at least some parents are really uh, asking for that. So I I'm wondering if you think uh, it's safe to open schools up full-time. So uh, I, I think that we have ways to do it, for sure. Um, 
One of the most important things there is to make sure that uh, teachers, administrators, and staff at schools are vaccinated. Um, and so I think that making sure that they're uh, they're prioritized in terms of vaccination is 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 incredibly important. Um, now there are other things as well that help a lot. Um, so we know for sure that increasing ventilation to the extent that it's possible, um, installing air filters to the extent that it's possible, masking, um, and also frequent testing are all ways that we can really uh, go a long way towards reducing the spread of COVID uh, that can take place in schools. So I think that we have plenty of strategies um, at our disposal uh, to open up schools. Uh, the crucial thing is to make sure that those resources are made readily available to those schools. It's not enough to just say what needs to be done and then tell the schools to reopen. Um, they need to be provided concretely with the tests um, and you know, with resources to either um, inform the staff and administrators how to keep themselves safe and uh, with physical resources, including air filters and whatever else might be needed to ensure that the schools are, are safe. Um, we can do it for sure. Um, but the resources need to be there. Um, and so that's, that's my hope is that the, uh, not only will the message go out that schools can reopen safely, but that we'll be able to sort of put our money where our mouth is and, and provide them with the resources they need to do that. In fact, I wonder if you could specifically address the need for, uh, the three foot, six foot spacing rules. Cause I'm hearing from schools that that's the, one of the biggest barriers to, to, to fully reopening, you know, five days in person. Um, with all the other measures, teacher vaccination, the other measures that you mentioned, uh, do you think, you know, reducing or eliminating that three foot, six foot rule is wise and should be done or no? Yeah, so I think that there's, uh, with all of these other measures, it could make sense to reduce that three foot, six foot rule. Um, but there's one important caveat with that too, which is that um, we know for sure that uh, one of the main ways that SARS-CoV-2 spreads is through super spreading events, um, where a single person might infect many others. So while relaxing the three foot, six foot rule, I think could make sense. I think that it does also still make sense to have um, some limitations on the total number of people who a person is interacting with. So maybe limitations on class sizes um, or and, and trying to maybe uh, keep people cohorted to some extent. Um, I think that those measures do still make some sense and form part of the overall strategy towards keeping schools safe. But the three foot, six foot rule in particular, um, I think that with these other, other measures in place uh, can probably be relaxed. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right. Uh, does anybody else have a question? If so, just raise your hand or you can get in touch with you by Zoom chat. I think that may be it. Um, Dr. Kissler, do you have any comments you'd like to make before we leave? No, I think that's all. Thanks very much for your joining. This concludes the March 12th press conference.